I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Fear and misfortune stalk the strange byways of a lonely planet. A Walk in the Dark by Arthur C. Clarke. That's next on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode. Thanks to Uncle Sean for his five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Just what I wanted. This is a superb sci-fi podcast. I love everything about it. Keep them coming. Well, thanks, Uncle Sean. We will. We now have 98 ratings on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. We would love to get to 100 ratings, and we could use more reviews, too, if you would be so kind. Even if you listen to us using some other player, You can go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating, if you think it's deserved, and leave a review. We'll leave a link to Apple Podcasts US, Canada, UK, Australia, Germany, and the Netherlands in the description. Those are the countries where most, but certainly not all, our listeners come from. If you live somewhere else and need a link, please send us an email. Scott at LostSciFi.com. Today marks the debut of Sir Arthur Charles Clarke on our podcast. Most people know him from the 1968 film 2001 A Space Odyssey, widely regarded as one of the most influential films of all time. Clarke was born in England in December 1917. He said his interest in science fiction began with the November 1928 issue of Amazing Stories magazine at the age of 11, which he read in 1929 after it had been shipped from the United States. 
Sir Arthur Charles Clarke remembered buying this life-changing magazine at Woolworths and said, and I quote, how I used to haunt that once famous store during my lunch hour, in search of issues of amazing wonder and astounding, buried like jewels in the junk pile of detective and western pulps. Clark did have some stories published between 1937 and 1945. Those stories were published in fanzines. His first professional sale was published in Astounding Science Fiction in April 1946. He was still a member of the Royal Air Force during World War II at the time he sold his first two stories to Astounding in 1945. Rescue Party sold first, followed by Loophole, which was actually the first story published. Over the next few years, his stories appeared regularly in leading pulps, and he always acknowledged them as his launch pad to become a writer. He wrote about a hundred short science fiction stories during his career, and dozens of novels. Today's story first appeared in Thrilling Wonder Stories magazine in August 1950, A Walk in the Dark by Arthur C. Clarke. Robert Armstrong had walked just over two miles, as far as he could judge, when his torch failed. He stood still for a moment, unable to believe that such a misfortune could really have befallen him. Then, half-maddened with rage, he hurled the useless instrument away. It landed somewhere in the darkness, disturbing the silence of this little world. A metallic echo came ringing back from the low hills. Then all was quiet again. This, thought Armstrong, was the ultimate misfortune. Nothing more could happen to him now. He was even able to laugh bitterly at his luck and resolve never again to imagine that the fickle goddess had ever favored him. Who would have believed that the only tractor at Camp 4 would have broken down when he was just setting off for Port Sanderson? He recalled the frenzied repair work, the relief when the second start had been made, and the final debacle when the caterpillar track had jammed hopelessly. It was no use, then, regretting the lateness of his departure. He could not have foreseen these accidents, and it was still a good four hours before the Canopus took off. He had to catch her, whatever happened. No other ship would be touching at this world for another month. Apart from the urgency of his business, four more weeks on this out-of-the-way planet were unthinkable. There had been only one thing to do. It was lucky that Port Sanderson was little more than six miles from the camp. Not a great distance, even on foot. He had been forced to leave all his equipment behind, but it could follow on the next ship, and he could manage without it. The road was poor, merely stamped out of the rock by one of the board's hundred-ton crushers. But there was no fear of going astray. Even now, he was in no real danger though he might well be too late to catch the ship. Progress would be slow, for he dare not risk losing the road in this region of canyons and enigmatic tunnels that had never been explored. It was, of course, pitch dark. Here at the edge of the galaxy, the stars were so few 
and scattered that their light was negligible. The strange crimson sun of this lonely world would not rise for many hours, and although five of the little moons were in the sky, they could barely be seen by the unaided eye. Not one of them could even cast a shadow. Armstrong was not the man to bewail his luck for long. He began to walk slowly along the road, feeling its texture with his feet. It was, he knew, fairly straight, except where it wound through Carver's Pass. He wished he had a stick or something to probe the way before him, but he would have to rely for guidance on the feel of the ground. It was terribly slow at first, until he gained confidence. He had never known how difficult it was to walk in a straight line. Although the feeble stars gave him his bearings, again and again he found himself stumbling among the virgin rocks at the edge of the crude roadway. He was traveling in long zigzags that took him to alternate sides of the road. Then he would stub his toes against the bare rock and grope his way back onto the hard-packed surface once again. Presently, it settled down to a routine. It was impossible to estimate his speed. He could only struggle along and hope for the best. There were four miles to go, four miles and as many hours. It should be easy enough, unless he lost his way. But he dared not think of that. Once he had mastered the technique, he could afford the luxury of thought. He could not pretend that he was enjoying the experience, but he had been in much worse positions before. As long as he remained on the road, he was perfectly safe. He had been hoping that as his eyes became adapted to the starlight, he would be able to see the way, but he now knew that the whole journey would be blind. The discovery gave him a vivid sense of his remoteness from the heart of the galaxy. On a night as clear as this, the skies of almost any other planet would have been blazing with stars. Here, at this outpost of the universe, the sky held perhaps a hundred faintly gleaming points of light, as useless as the five ridiculous moons on which no one had ever bothered to land. A slight change in the road interrupted his thoughts. Was there a curve here? Or had he veered off to the right again? He moved very slowly along the invisible and ill-defined border. Yes, there was no mistake. The road was bending to the left. He tried to remember its appearance in the daytime, but he had only seen it once before. Did this mean that he was nearing the pass? He hoped so, for the journey would then be half completed. He peered ahead into the blackness, but the ragged line of the horizon told him nothing. Presently, he found that the road had straightened itself again, and his spirits sank. The entrance to the pass must still be some way ahead. There were at least four more miles to go. Four miles? How ridiculous the distance seemed! How long would it take the Canopus to travel four miles? He doubted if man could measure so short an interval of time. And how many trillions of miles had he, Robert Armstrong, traveled in his life? It must have reached a staggering total by now. 
for in the last 20 years he had scarcely stayed more than a month at a time on any single world. This very year he had twice made the crossing of the galaxy, and that was a notable journey, even in these days of the Phantom Drive. He tripped over a loose stone, and the jolt brought him back to reality. It was no use here thinking of ships who could eat up the light years. He was facing nature, with no weapons but his own strength and skill. It was strange that it took him so long to identify the real cause of his uneasiness. The last four weeks had been very full, and the rush of his departure, coupled with the annoyance and anxiety caused by the tractor's breakdowns, had driven everything else from his mind. Moreover, he had always prided himself on his hard-headedness and lack of imagination. Until now, he had forgotten all about that first evening at the base, when the crews had regaled him with the usual tall yarns concocted for the benefit of newcomers. It was then that the old base clerk had told the story of his walk by night from Port Sanderson to the camp, and of what had trailed him through Carver's Pass, keeping always beyond the limit of his torchlight. Armstrong, who had heard such tales on a score of worlds, had paid it little attention at the time. This planet, after all, was known to be uninhabited. But logic could not dispose of the matter as easily as that. Suppose, after all, there was some truth in the old man's fantastic tale. It was not a pleasant thought, and Armstrong did not intend to brood upon it but he knew that if he dismissed it out of hand, it would continue to prey on his mind. The only way to conquer imaginary fears was to face them boldly. He would have to do that now. His strongest argument was the complete barrenness of this world and its utter desolation, though against that one could set many counter-arguments, as indeed the old clerk had done. Man had only lived on this planet for twenty years, and much of it was still unexplored. No one could deny that the tunnels out in the wasteland were rather puzzling. But everyone believed them to be volcanic vents, though, of course, life often crept into such places. With a shudder, he remembered the giant polyps that had snared the first explorers of Vargan Three. It was all very inconclusive. Suppose, for the sake of argument, one granted the existence of life here. What of that? The vast majority of life forms in the universe were completely indifferent to man. Some, of course, like the gas beings of Alcaran, or the roving wave lattices of Chandeloon, could not even detect him, but passed through or around him as if he didn't exist. Others were merely inquisitive, some embarrassingly friendly. There were few indeed that would attack unless provoked. Nevertheless, it was a grim picture that the old store's clerk had painted. Back in the warm, well-lighted smoking room with the drinks going round, it had been easy enough to laugh at it. But here in the darkness, miles away from any human settlement, it was very different. It was almost a relief when he stumbled off the road again 
and had to grope with his hands until he found it once more. This seemed a very rough patch, and the road was scarcely distinguishable from the rocks around. In a few minutes, however, he was safely on his way again. It was unpleasant to see how quickly his thoughts returned to the same disquieting subject. Clearly, it was worrying him more than he cared to admit. He drew consolation from one fact. It had been quite obvious that no one at the base had believed the old fellow's story. Their questions and banner had proved that. At the time, he had laughed as loudly as any of them. After all, what was the evidence? A dim shape just seen in the darkness? That might well have been an oddly formed rock. And the curious clicking noise that had so impressed the old man? Anyone could imagine such sounds at night, if they were sufficiently overwrought. If it had been hostile, why hadn't the creatures come any closer? Because it was afraid of my light, the old chap had said. Well, that was plausible enough. It would explain why nothing had ever been seen in the daytime. Such a creature might live underground, only emerging at night. Hang it! Why was he taking the old idiot's raving so seriously? Armstrong got control of his thoughts again. If he went on this way, he told himself angrily, he would soon be seeing and hearing a whole menagerie of monsters. There was, of course, one factor that disposed of the ridiculous story at once. It was really very simple. He felt sorry he hadn't thought of it before. What would such a creature live on? There was not even a trace of vegetation on the whole of the planet. He laughed to think that the bogey could be disposed of so easily, and in the same instant felt annoyed with himself for not laughing aloud. If he was so sure of his reasoning, why not whistle, or sing, or do anything to keep up his spirits? He put the question fairly to himself, as a test of his manhood. Half ashamed, he had to admit that he was still afraid. Afraid because there might be something in it after all. But at least his analysis had done him some good. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It would have been better if he had left it there and remained half convinced by his argument. But a part of his mind was still busily trying to break down his careful reasoning. It succeeded only too well.
And when he remembered the plant beings of Zantil Major, the shock was so unpleasant that he stopped dead in his tracks. Now, the plant beings of Zantil were not in any way horrible. They were, in fact, extremely beautiful creatures. But what made them appear so distressing now was the knowledge that they could live for indefinite periods with no food whatsoever. All the energy they needed for their strange lives they extracted from cosmic radiation. And that was almost as intense here as anywhere else in the universe. He had scarcely thought of one example before others crowded into his mind, and he remembered the life form on Trantor Beta, which was the only one known capable of directly utilizing atomic energy. That, too, had lived on an utterly barren world, very much like this. Armstrong's mind was rapidly splitting into two distinct portions, one half trying to convince the other, and neither wholly succeeding. He did not realize how far his morale had gone until he found himself holding his breath, lest it conceal any sound from the darkness about him. Angrily, he cleared his mind of the rubbish that had been gathering there and turned once more to the immediate problem. There was no doubt that the road was slowly rising, and the silhouette of the horizon seemed much higher in the sky. The road began to twist, and suddenly he was aware of great rocks on either side of him. Soon, only a narrow ribbon of sky was still visible and the darkness became, if possible, even more intense. Somehow, he felt safer with the rock walls surrounding him. It meant that he was protected, except in two directions. Also, the road had been leveled more carefully, and it was easy to keep to it. Best of all, he knew now that the journey was more than half completed. For a moment, his spirits began to rise. Then, with maddening perversity, his mind went back into the old grooves again. He remembered that it was on the far side of Carver's Pass that the old clerk's adventure had taken place, if it had ever happened at all. In half a mile, he would be out in the open again, out of the protection of these sheltering rocks. The thought seemed doubly horrible now and he felt already a sense of nakedness. He could be attacked from any direction, and he would be utterly helpless. Until now, he had still retained some self-control. Very resolutely, he had kept his mind away from the one fact that gave some color to the old man's tale. The single piece of evidence that had stopped the banner in the crowded room back at the camp and brought a sudden hush upon the company. Now, as Armstrong's will weakened, he recalled again the words that had struck a momentary chill, even in the warm comfort of the base building. He had never heard any sound of pursuit from the dim shape, sensed rather than seen at the limit of his light. There was no scuffling of claws or hooves on rock, nor ever the clatter of displaced stones. It was as if, so the old man had declared in that solemn manner of his, as if the thing that was following could see perfectly in the darkness and had many small legs or pads 
so that it could move swiftly and easily over the rock, like a giant caterpillar, or one of the carpet things of Kralkor, too. Yet, although there had been no noise of pursuit, there had been one sound that the old man had caught several times. It was so unusual that its very strangeness made it doubly ominous. It was a faint but horribly persistent clicking. The old fellow had been able to describe it very vividly, much too vividly for Armstrong's liking now. Have you ever listened to a large insect crunching its prey? he said. Well, it was just like that. I imagine that a crab makes exactly the same noise with its claws when it clashes them together. It was a, what's the word? A chitinous sound. At this point, Armstrong remembered laughing loudly. Strange how it was all coming back to him now. But no one else had laughed, though they had been quick to do so earlier. Sensing the change of tone, he had sobered at once and asked the old man to continue his story. It had been quickly told. The next day, a party of skeptical technicians had gone into the no-man's land beyond Carver's Pass. They were not skeptical enough to leave their guns behind, but they had no cause to use them, for they found no trace of any living thing. There were the inevitable pits and tunnels, glistening holes down which the light of the torches rebounded endlessly until it was lost in the distance. But the planet was riddled with them. Though the party found no sign of life, it discovered one thing it did not like at all. Out in the barren and unexplored land beyond the pass, they had come upon an even larger tunnel than the rest. Near the mouth of that tunnel was a massive rock, half embedded in the ground, and the sides of that rock had been worn away, as if it had been used as an enormous whetstone. No less than five of those present had seen this disturbing rock. None of them could explain it satisfactorily as a natural formation, but they still refused to accept the old man's story. Armstrong had asked them if they had ever put it to the test. There had been an uncomfortable silence. Then Big Andrew Hargraves had said, Hell, who'd walk out to the pass at night just for fun? And had left it at that. Indeed, there was no other record of anyone walking from Port Sanderson to the camp by night, or for that matter, by day. During the hours of light, no unprotected human being could live in the open beneath the rays of the enormous lurid sun that seemed to fill half the sky. And no one would walk six miles wearing radiation armor if the tractor was available. Armstrong felt that he was leaving the pass. The rocks on either side were falling away, and the road was no longer as firm and well-packed as it had been. He was coming out into the open plain once more, and somewhere, not far away in the darkness, was that enigmatic pillar that might have been used for sharpening monstrous fangs or claws. 
It was not a reassuring thought. Feeling distinctly worried now, Armstrong made a great effort to pull himself together. He would try and be rational again. He would think of business, the work he had done at the camp, anything but this infernal place. For a while, he succeeded quite well. But presently, with a maddening persistence, every train of thought came back to the same point. He could not get out of his mind the picture of that inexplicable rock and its appalling possibilities. The ground was quite flat again, and the road drove on straight as an arrow. There was one gleam of consolation. Port Sanderson could not be much more than two miles away. Armstrong had no idea how long he had been on the road. Unfortunately, his watch was not illuminated, and he could only guess at the passage of time. With any luck, the Canopus should not take off for another two hours at least. But he could not be sure, and now another fear began to enter his mind, the dread that he might see a vast constellation of lights rising swiftly into the sky ahead and know that all this agony of mind had been in vain. He was not zigzagging so badly now, and seemed to be able to anticipate the edge of the road before stumbling off it. It was probable, he cheered himself by thinking, that he was traveling almost as fast as if he had a light. If all went well, he might be nearing Port Sanderson in thirty minutes, a ridiculously small space of time. How he would laugh at his fears when he strolled into his already reserved stateroom in the Canopus and felt that peculiar quiver as the phantom drive hurled the great ship far out of this system, back to the clustered star clouds near the center of the galaxy, back towards Earth itself, which he had not seen for so many years. One day, he told himself, he really must visit Earth again. All his life he had been making the promise, but always there had been the same answer, lack of time. Strange, wasn't it, that such a tiny planet should have played so enormous a part in the development of the universe, should even have come to dominate worlds far wiser and more intelligent than itself. Armstrong's thoughts were harmless again, and he felt calmer. The knowledge that he was nearing Port Sanderson was immensely reassuring, and he deliberately kept his mind on familiar, unimportant matters. Carver's past was already far behind, and with it that thing he no longer intended to recall. One day, if he ever returned to this world, he would visit the past in the daytime and laugh at his fears. In twenty minutes now, they would have joined the nightmares of his childhood. It was almost a shock, though one of the most pleasant he had ever known, when he saw the lights of Port Sanderson come up over the horizon. The curvature of this little world was very deceptive. It did not seem right that a planet with a gravity almost as great as Earth should have a horizon so close at hand. One day, Someone would have to discover what lay at this world's core to give it so great a density. Perhaps the many tunnels would help. It was an unfortunate turn of thought. 
But the nearness of his goal had robbed it of terror now. Indeed, the thought that he might really be in danger seemed to give his adventure a certain piquancy and heightened interest. Nothing could happen to him now, with ten minutes to go and the lights of the port in sight. A few minutes later, his feelings changed abruptly when he came to the sudden bend in the road. He had forgotten the chasm that caused this detour and added half a mile to the journey. Well, what of it? An extra half mile would make no difference now. Another ten minutes at the most. It was very disappointing when the lights of the city vanished. Armstrong had not remembered the hill which the road was skirting. Perhaps it was only a low ridge, scarcely noticeable in the daytime. But by hiding the lights of the port, it had taken away his chief talisman and left him again at the mercy of his fears. Very unreasonable, his intelligence told him. He began to think how horrible it would be if anything happened now, so near the end of the journey. He kept the worst of his fear at bay for a while, hoping desperately that the lights of the city would soon reappear. But as the minutes dragged on, he realized that the ridge must be longer than he imagined. He tried to cheer himself by the thought that the city would be all the nearer when he saw it again. But somehow, logic seemed to have failed him now. For presently, he found himself doing something he had not stooped to, even out in the waste by Carver's Pass. He stopped, turned slowly around, and with bated breath listened until his lungs were nearly bursting. The silence was uncanny considering how near he must be to the port. There was certainly no sound from behind him. Of course there wouldn't be, he told himself angrily. But he was immensely relieved. The thought of that faint and insistent clicking had been haunting him for the last hour. So friendly and familiar was the noise that did reach him at last that the anticlimax almost made him laugh out loud. Drifting through the still air from a source clearly not more than a mile away came the sound of a landing field tractor, perhaps one of the machines loading the Canopus itself. In a matter of seconds, thought Armstrong, he would be around this ridge with the port only a few hundred yards ahead. The journey was nearly ended. In a few moments, this evil plane would be no more than a fading nightmare. It seemed terribly unfair. So little time, such a small fraction of a human life was all he needed now. But the gods have always been unfair to man, and now they were enjoying their little jest. For there could be no mistaking the rattle of monstrous claws in the darkness ahead of him. That's A Walk in the Dark by Arthur C. Clarke. Next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, Ralph Banks, editor of Popular Crafts Monthly, was a short, stocky man with a round pink face, a crisp crew cut, an intensely energetic manner. When a letter from the Smithsonian Institute came across his desk, it caught his attention. A Practical Man's Guide by Jack Vance. 
That's next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.